Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. It is commonly said that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and that is true. But is the teaching of the Trinity in the Bible? Is it in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament? Did Jesus believe in the Trinity? Some might even say that the Trinity, because God is transcendent and ultimately an enigma, the Trinity can be nothing more than a theory about the nature of God. Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Answering Arguments Against Christianity. Today, the argument that the Trinity is a late theological construct. Craig Parton joins us. He's a partner in the oldest law firm west of the Mississippi, located in Santa Barbara, California. He's United States Director of the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights, and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Craig, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Good to be back. You say that denying the Trinitarian nature of God is the most irrational and unscientific position (laughs) possible. What do you mean? Well, I mean that the facts underlying what we mean by the Trinity bubble out of the text. The text is reliable. It's uh, tested by Jesus and his resurrection as being the very words of God. And Trinity though the word isn't used specifically in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter, the theology, the facts that make up the doctrine of the Trinity are everywhere from stem to stern in the Bible. And to deny the Trinity is to take the most unscientific position. Science should go with facts, not with philosophy. When your facts get contradictory to your philosophy, facts should win out. And I use the illustration in the uh, article on the Trinity and objections overruled of the nature of light. Light has been found by different tests to be both wave-like and particulate in nature. And by that I mean it has properties that indicate that it has mass and it has properties that show that it's wave-like in, in character. Now, you don't get scientists breaking off into wave schools versus particulate schools of the doctrine of the light in subatomic uh, physics. You get people staying with both facts. The fact is, wave-like and particulate characteristics of light exist, and scientific observation confirms that. And We call that unit of light a photon. And it contains in itself the wave-like and particulate descriptions that I've just mentioned. You don't break off and say, well, it's not rational. A wave can't be a particle, and a particle can't be a wave, so somebody's wrong. No, the fact is is that science says uh, we're going to hold to a word that describes and includes both phenomenon, and that's a photon. And it's exactly what Trinity is doing 
with the facts of the Bible. It is telling you in a word what the facts underlying it are. It does not create a doctrine. It is the explanation of the most facts that are in the text. You say that this objection is really very rare. In fact, people who object to the doctrine of the Trinity or that it somehow is not in Scripture are a dying breed. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, you should be so happy to run into an unbeliever that has an objection with respect to the Trinity because they don't know the Trinity. They, They don't know the story of Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, Jonah and the whale. If you're lucky, you'll run into somebody who has enough sophistication who has read enough to know that the doctrine of the Trinity is fundamental to Christian teaching. And as culture slips more and more into secularism, knowledge of what the Bible actually teaches is becoming more and more rare. So my comment there was just that be grateful you have somebody as interested in Christian theology who can even articulate what the Trinity means and and formulate a question. Uh, that should lead directly to the answer, which is I fundamentally believe it because Jesus put his stamp of approval on the Old and New Testament, and he has the authority to tell us whether this is the correct understanding or not by his resurrection from the dead. And that establishes his authority as God, and he puts his stamp of approval on the Trinity as the last thing he says in Matthew 28, in go baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus <laughs> clearly believed in the Trinity. He rose from the dead, and until you do, uh, I'm going with Jesus as the best witness to the truth of what is meant in the Christian church by the term Trinity. When we use that term, what are we saying or what are we not saying? Well, we're saying that the Trinity is explaining that God is a unity subsisting in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are one God. Old Testament is clear that God is one in Deuteronomy 6.4. The New Testament does the same thing in Mark 12.29, Ephesians 4.6. The scripture clearly teaches that God exists eternally in the person of his son. Doubting Thomas in John 20 is an illustration of that, that he exists eternally in the person of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, that this triune God has been active and present in creation and redemption through the entire work of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we're saying Trinity is. What we're not saying, Todd, (laughs) <laughs> is is that the concept is easy to comprehend. It is the most sublime concept you can imagine, that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and saved the world through his atoning work on Calvary's cross. It is a term that pops out of the text itself, but actually becomes a known term in use in Christian theology in the second century, the church father Tertullian uses the term. So it it is right on top of the apostolic age. It is not a construct that's imposed upon the text from the outside. 
it is the very best term to use to describe what the Scripture is teaching about the nature of God. And should we be surprised that the concept is fundamentally mysterious, even though we can articulate certain facts about it, that it still is a very high, incomprehensible truth at a certain level? I think we'd expect nothing else from God himself if he was to become a man in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of high theology we'd expect when talking about the subject of the Trinity. Does it surprise you, Craig, that a diminishing number, a rapidly diminishing number of Christians can articulate the biblical position, even in its simplest form, of the Trinity? Well, theology is not taught in most uh, churches. They're personality-oriented. They're not teaching-oriented, bringing people deeply into the text and working with the fundamental confessions. I mean, Lutherans don't understand what an advantage they have having their confessional documents, which go through and explain, usually right at the front end, in terms of the doctrine of the nature of God and affirm the Trinity and affirm the creeds that have arisen to articulate what we believe in them. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Many churches, particularly in the evangelical flavor, are kind of making the theology up as they go along. And there's not an appreciation of creeds. Creeds are Catholic. Creeds are for dead people, the dead Orthodox just like written prayers are the kind of thing the dead Orthodox use. We pray ex corde from the heart, and uh, we don't put a big emphasis on solid Christian uh, education. It doesn't surprise me that Christians can't articulate what is meant by the Trinity because they, they aren't going to the confessions. They don't have confessional statements. They're doctrinal statement is often contained on a three-by-five card with uh, one sentence, uh, Jesus died for the sins of the world and you need to receive him, period. That's about as deep as many of the churches get. And we have that, as I mentioned, a great advantage and gift in that we have the Augsburg Confession, the Formula of Concord, other confessional statements that really explain as much as is humanly possible, what is encompassed by the term Trinity. How early post-apostles is the Church articulating and formulating its confession of the Triune God? Well, Tertullian is doing so in uh, the late 2nd century. He, He died in 225 A.D., and he's already using the term, and you could probably safely say He's not the first one. There's probably those before him. That's floating around right at the end of the apostolic era. I mean, you have apostles living into 100, 110 A.D., the apostolic band, those who learned at the feet of the apostles, still alive in the second century, around the time that Tertullian's born and starting his ministry. So it, it pops out very early, it is consistent with the apostolic teaching, and you know the fact is is that it's <laughs> it's survived twenty centuries of critique and uh, probably the sin qua non of 
whether a person holds to Christian teaching or not is what do they hold as to the Trinity. If you deny the Trinity, you are not a Christian. There may be explanations for why you have never been educated in what the Trinity teaches, but it's a fundamental distinctive of Christian theology, basic to anyone who claims to be a Christian. As I say in the article, you can't be a non-Trinitarian Christian. It's just self-contradictory. To what degree did the Church's response to Christological heresies help also further articulate what Scripture teaches about the Trinity? Yeah, there is definitely the Nicene Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and Chalcedon in 451 dealt with the nature of Christ, the two natures, how we are to understand the two natures, and the importance of articulating that in a way that can be understood and memorized and is in all liturgical churches, certainly on Communion Sunday, the Nicene Creed is recited uh, no matter if you're in a Catholic church, a Lutheran church, or an Eastern Orthodox church, you are going to recite the theology of the Trinity. And it's completely fundamental to the understanding of what a Christian holds to. So it's there from the the very, very front end. It grows out of the Christological issues that were formulated in the early 5th century and late 4th century. Those battles over the nature of Christ were founded on the, the battle over the Trinity. Athanasius of Alexandria three times came and was rebuked for holding to the Trinity. And the the saying arose, it was Athanasius against the world. He stood with Scripture. He stood with what the teaching is on the Trinity in Scripture and was willing to suffer banishment three separate times as a young principal advocate of Christian theology and willing to be tossed out and stood strongly against the Arian heresy that was floating around at the time. Arius was a a 4th century Christian heretic who held that Jesus was the firstborn creation of God the Father and not co-eternal with the Father. As we say in the creeds, begotten and not made. Those kinds of controversies, the Christological controversies, the confrontation with Arius really gave rise to the critical councils that define the the understanding that every Christian should have of the Trinity. And the burden at this point, Todd, seems to me, as a trial lawyer, I'm always interested in burden of proof. The burden should be on the one who denies the Trinity that that is Christian doctrine. After the number of centuries that the doctrine has withstood criticism, an analysis should give anyone great pause to say, I'm a non-Trinitarian Christian. The burden is clearly on them to advocate why the church has been wrong for 20 centuries. Because a lot of very astute, insightful theologians, from Athanasius and Augustine to Luther, Calvin to C.S. Lewis to John Montgomery, have articulated that this is fundamental Christian doctrine. Uh, 
that's been held by all Orthodox Christians throughout the centuries, from the first apostolic teachings on the subject to, of course, Jesus' last words, which I think are critical, that they're the foundation for the Trinitarian theology. Craig Barton is our guest. It's our series, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, the argument that Trinity is a late theological construct, and we'll deal with the Trinity in the Old Testament next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Advent season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Advent season, lutheranpublicradio.org. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, cph.org slash witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Craig Parton is our guest author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled Three, we're responding to the argument against Christianity that the Trinity is a late theological construct. Craig, someone might say, look, I know that the Trinity is explicit in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. What are your thoughts there? I'd respond that it is in the Old Testament. God said, let us make man in our image. There is the plural understanding that God in his Trinitarian splendor, was present in the garden, in Genesis, in various places in the uh, Old Testament. You have uh, very clear references to the Son of Man and his redemptive work that would be coming. The doctrine is clearly set forward in the Old Testament and confirmed by Christ himself in the New. So it's not something that is a construct that somebody thought would be a fancy term to lead people astray. It's baked into the biblical text from stem to stern. And the fact that it's the word Trinity is not used, we've got to get people to understand just because the word itself is not found in the text, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, has nothing to do with whether the doctrine is taught or not. 
the word inerrancy isn't used in Scripture, but the the absolute truth of God's Word is a concept that is factually supported in Scripture from stem to stern. And that's why the the people who hold to inerrancy have all the verses on their side, and those who deny inerrancy are the ones that have the burden of proof on it. So there, there are doctrines, theological constructs, and concepts that we all hold to as confessional Lutheran Christians where the actual term may not be found in Scripture. But the fact is, what we mean by the term is supported completely in Scripture. Inerrancy may not be used, but it's very clear that when God speaks, He speaks absolute truth, and there is an equivalency between Scripture and the Word of God. It doesn't reveal the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And inerrancy and its foundations are clearly supported in both the Old and New Testament. I have noted in my study on this that Jesus' earthly ministry begins with the revelation of the Trinity in his baptism and ends with his explicit description of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's absolutely marvelous. Absolutely true. I don't see how it can be more explicitly apparent that the Trinity is connected directly with Jesus' ministry from stem to stern, as we've said, from the beginning, from his baptism. The fact is, God the Father is God, is clearly established, both Old and New Testament the Deuteronomy 6-4 passage. The deity of Christ is clearly taught in the New Testament, and there's a plethora of verses on that. I, I like to go to the Doubting Thomas, John 20 verses, to get the clearest presentation of Christ's deity, where Thomas says, My Lord and my God, and Jesus does not say, Wait a minute, you've gone over the top, Thomas. I may have uh, done a few things that were unusual, but I've never claimed to be God. He doesn't rebuke him for that in the least. And he he clearly states that he has the power to forgive sin. And Mark 2 is a classic with the paralytic being let down through the roof, where he announces that his sins are forgiven. And the, <laughs> there's great mumbling about who can do this but God alone, and so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on this earth to forgive sins. I'm telling you, get off your bed and walk out of here. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus confirms a unverifiable claim that he can forgive sins. He confirms it by doing a verifiable miracle. And this is throughout the New Testament. The deity of Christ is clearly established in the Holy Spirit's deity in Acts 5. Thananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit, is considered lying to God himself and the other verses that we touch on in the article. You say that, uh, and you t touched upon this a little bit ago, but you say that the doctrine of the Trinity is battle-tested over the millennia it's been confessed by the Church. Go into some of that. 
Yeah, the the fact is is that councils have convened of Christians trying to get the doctrine clear because of the rise of various heresies. Arianism in the 4th century gave birth to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Nicaea in 325 AD was dealing with issues of God's nature. These have resulted in creedal affirmations, and creeds are just summaries of the facts taught in Scripture. They're not made up of new concepts that have no connection to Scripture. And those have been held to by Christian believers since forever. (laughs) Essentially, the text teaches the Trinity. As soon as the apostles were dead, there were, and even while they were alive, there were heretics floating around uh, with different views of who Jesus was, Gnosticism, etc. And it, it took ecumenical councils to convene to deal fundamentally with some of these heresies of Arianism and others, Gnosticism. And those confessional statements are still as binding and as biblically authoritative as they were when they were originally enacted. And the fact is, they just reflect what Scripture teaches. If somebody says they can hold to the Apostles' Creed, but they have problems with, for example, the statement he suffered under Pontius Pilate, well, that's the most fundamental heresy of all, to hold to Scripture being uh, accurate, except for the one statement about suffering under Pontius Pilate puts Jesus' historicity at stake and threatens it. So anybody who takes a prong out of one of the confessional creeds, one of the creeds of Christendom, has definitely the burden of proof because for centuries Christians have reviewed this, compared it with Scripture, and come out at the end saying this needs to be in our worship services every Sunday to remind us of what true Christian doctrine, Orthodox Christianity, consists of. We're responding to the argument that the Trinity is a late theological construct imposed on the Bible with Craig Parton. He's a partner in the oldest law firm west of the Mississippi, located in Santa Barbara, California, United States Director of the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights, and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. We'll send you Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany season hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir for a year-end contribution of $250 or more. You can make a gift at issuesetc.org or by calling us 618-223-8385. When we come back, we'll see what Craig thinks about those who say that the Trinity is at best a theory. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. 
Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series Answering Arguments Against Christianity Today. The Trinity is a Late Theological Construct. Craig Parton is our guest. Craig, you are United States Director of the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights. If you would, tell us a little bit about the Academy coming up in the summer of 2024. Yeah, once again, we're filling up quickly. We have 20 spaces, classes taught all in English, and uh, we think the best apologetic faculty uh, in the world, certainly for a non-residential program. It's for 12 days in the beautiful uh, city of Strasbourg, and we do some uh, traveling on Bastille Day to Comar and to see the Grunwald altarpiece and other theologically interesting sites in the Alsace. We've been doing this for 26 years. I've never paid for advertising. I probably owe you a lot of money, Todd, for the free uh, airtime you've given us over the quarter of a century. We've had all kinds of people come to the academy Last year we had half a dozen pastors and theology students. We had lawyers. We had scientific engineers. We had housewives. We had undergraduate students all sitting next to each other with the common goal of being educated in the defense of the Christian faith. And in light of growing secularism that we we all bemoan, it, it behooves us to have the best training in the defense of the faith that we can. This next year, along with John Montgomery and myself, is uh, Angus Manoj, Professor of Philosophy at Concordia, Wisconsin, and Dr. Paul Nelson from the Discovery Institute, an authority on evolutionary biology. We're going to be very strong on the science side. And, of course, we teach historical apologetics, legal apologetics, biblical authority, and a number of other topics. And uh, just encourage people to go to our website, apologeticsacademy.eu for Europe, and uh, see what's involved in getting all their questions answered. But I encourage them to register ASAP uh, as we fill up quickly, and we're already about three-quarters full for 2024 in July. You'll find a link to the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Someone might say, well, because God is God and therefore ultimately incomprehensible, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, can never be anything more than a theory about God's nature. How do you respond to that? Well, It can be a theory that's been tested by the facts of Scripture for 2,000 years. It's like the theory of gravity. Could it be refuted? (laughs) 
technically it's possible, just as it's possible to falsify Christianity, it's possible the body of Jesus Christ could be found and the entire religion is destroyed. But they've had 2,000 years to find the body and we're probably in the best position to do it and highly motivated to do it at the time it occurred. And the fact that it hasn't means you should go with what the scripture teaches on the historicity of Christ and his resurrection and not wait for the theory to be disproven. Somebody's someday going to disprove gravity. Good luck. It's been tested for a millennia and uh, found to be a basic scientific concept. So I think it's important when someone's asked apologetically, is it possible to falsify Christianity? Is there any set of circumstances that could exist where you would deny Christianity as being true? And the answer is yes. The answer is 1 Corinthians 15. It's Paul gives it, that if Christ be not raised from the dead, we're of all most men to be pitied. We've deceived ourselves. We've deceived others. It's the most pernicious philosophy in that case that's ever existed because it's given people hope of a life eternal and there is no hope. So Christianity uniquely offers a falsification principle, which most religions, in fact all religions, really don't. You always should ask somebody who comes to your doorstep with the latest religious viewpoint, how could I falsify your viewpoint? What would have to exist for your viewpoint to be found false? What facts would have to exist? If they say there are none, well, there's no point in talking to them because there's no situation that they could ever consider that their religion has been falsified. There's no benefit to entering into discussion with a person like that because they're invincibly ignorant. When you show them facts that refute their religious position, they're dismissive of it because their religion isn't built on factual truth where Christianity is absolutely wedded to historical truth, the truth that Christ is indeed risen from the dead in verifiable history. You cite novelist Dorothy Sayers comparing the persons in the work of the Trinity to the creation of a book. What does she say there? Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. In her book, The Mind of the Maker, she talks about the fact that the Trinity is in every work of creation. And she does that and expands on that. She does it this way. The idea of the creative work is parallel to the nature of God the Father. The expression of the artistic work, the painting, the music, the materiality of it, the expression of it is parallel with the work of the Son. God the Father... God the Son, who became man on our behalf, walked around with a real father and mother, lived in a real town, suffered under a real Roman proconsul, and then the power of the expressive work is uh, parallel to the Holy Spirit, she says. Think of some of the great artistic works, Bach's Mass and B minor. The idea of it is first the conception of the idea in the head of the creator. The expression of the artistic work is in the manuscript of the Mass in B minor. That is what's been left to us, the music. 
and then there's the effect or the power of it, which is uh, has its own kind of surreal nature to it. This happens in literature also. You think of some of Canon Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. He had the idea of, say, the thread of scarlet. He had the idea for it. The expression is the book. And the power of it is, once it left his pen, it had the power to affect people tremendously more than what he thought it ought to. He he had a very low view of the value of the Sherlock Holmes stories. But in fact, people have found them to present a Christ figure in many different ways, and particularly in the person of Sherlock Holmes. So the power of it kind of floated independent of its material expression. Sayers makes this point in The Mind of the Maker, that there's this threefold creative activity going on in every artistic work, and it mirrors the Trinity, and it is evidence, she says, of the truth of the Trinitarian doctrine in Scripture is paralleled in not a complete parallel way with artistic works, but there's some similarities that can be attributed to the idea, the expression, and the power of an artistic work of great profundity like the Mass in B minor. Can the gospel be retained if the Trinity is denied? Absolutely not, because you're now sideways to Jesus. And therefore, Jesus had it wrong. He misunderstood his own nature. And if he had it wrong, he's certainly not God in the flesh, able to die an atoning death for your sins and the sins of the world. So while it appears that you might be able to hold on to both, be an anti-Trinitarian and a Christian, the fact of the matter is, It's hopelessly impossible. It's mutually contradictory and disastrous because Jesus opined on the subject. And if you're sideways to Jesus on this, good luck to you. The point of being a Christian in light of the personal relationship with Christ that comes through repentance and salvation offered at Calvary's cross is to get yourself aligned with Jesus' words not contrary to his words. And his teaching on the Trinity is fundamental to his understanding that he is God in the flesh. And if he's wrong about that, he could be wrong about other things. He could be wrong about his understanding of the top three stories in the Old Testament. He gives an interpretation of them that is utterly fact-intensive about the literal nature of Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, Jonah and the whale, and to take an anti-historical view of any of those three gets you sideways to him. And the fact is, (laughs) I hate to be the one to advise you, he is risen from the dead and therefore proves that he has the best basis for getting the stories of those three right. And you want to get yourself aligned with his view of the Bible his view of the Old Testament and the coming New Testament, not find ways to get sideways to him. That's always a very ill-advised approach. Craig Parton is a partner in the oldest law firm west of the Mississippi, located in Santa Barbara, California. He's United States Director of the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, 
in human rights, and he's author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Craig, thank you again. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part this week by LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Learn about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Scott Klusendorf for the case for life. We'll discuss Christian decision-making and the end of life with Pastor Dennis McFadden. And we'll have Pastor Andrew Packer respond to the assertion that gender is fluid. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.